Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Carly Sharon. I'm your co-host, Anthony Cruz. And today we are here with Alec Molander. Thanks so much for being here, Alec. Hi, thanks for having me on. So today we're recording on Halloween. So to start off, I want to know what everyone's favorite like Halloween movie is. <laughs> That's Crikey. a tough one. <laughs> no, I'm a big fan of Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, massive, massive fan of John Carpenter's The Thing. Okay, I don't know that one. Love John Carpenter, love Halloween. Uh, I suppose it's not really a Halloween movie, but it's a scary (laughs) movie you could watch on Halloween. Yeah, yeah, of course. That'll do. What about you, Susie? I want to say Hocus Pocus. That's a good one. That's a good one. one. Yeah, yeah, I just watched that last night. First time? No, no, no. Oh, okay. I was like, first time? (laughs) It's a yearly thing. (laughs) Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Mine is, it's a really obscure, like, well, maybe it's not obscure, but it's Mickey's House of Villains. It's like a Disney movie. Me and my sister watched it, like, every Halloween growing up, so I watch it every year. It's just a cute little, like, short clips. I love that movie. I had the VHS tape of yes, it. Yes! Yes! <laughs> it's so good. Oh it's so God. good. Okay, well, now that that's out of the way, <laughs> we can talk about <laughs> your research. So, um, do you want to give us, like, a brief overview of uh, what program you're in and what you do? Uh, sure, sure. So, um, I'm a third-year PhD student in the uh, LIS program at FIMS. And I'm studying uh, critical cataloging theory, specifically, um, oh crikey, not going into too much specifics straight (laughs) away, but uh, yeah, critical cataloging theory is is sort of the overview of uh, what I'm doing. Uh, Basically taking a sort of critical look at the way in which material is organized in libraries. Good enough stuff. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Could you go into some detail? Are there different cataloging systems or is there kind of one uniform way you do it? There's really there's hundreds of cataloging systems. Essentially, a cataloging system is is just a name, an overall name for the way in which you organize your material. I mean, if you wanted, you could organize it, uh, the material based on color, but then it would be if you put all the blue books together or the red books together or the green books that's great but it's not really that great for retrieving material if somebody comes in and goes okay i want a copy of um like jane eyre or something like that you go okay great but what color is it you know it's not helpful for bringing it back for the sort of library patron for using it but really the main kind of ones that are used in uh, libraries around the world now it would be the uh Library of Congress cataloging system, which is mainly used in sort of academic libraries and government libraries and that. And uh, the famous one, which I think most people would have heard of, which is the Dewey Decimal System, yes. which is mainly used in public libraries. And both of them are extremely problematic and both of them are about 100 years old. So being about 100 years old, they kind of preserve the way in which people thought about libraries 100 years ago. And 100 years ago, libraries were being organized by and for the benefit of very specific demographics mm. and of sort of what's known of Dewey himself who came up with the Dewey Decimal System is he wasn't a very nice man and he had some very weird views of the world that nowadays are kind of seen as uh, not that great and, and they are reflected in his sort of knowledge organization system that's still reflected in how libraries are sort of organized their materials and it's a very similar thing with the library of congress cataloging system it's over a century old and it reflects the way in which the people who came up with it organized their materials and thought about how libraries should be structured and that's still with us and a lot of uh, effort has been uh, put into trying to sort of sort that out trying to uh, um, deal with it because 
uh, it's really, really great for retrieving information if you're, uh, if you're male, if you're white, if you're mm. sort of of a certain um, social class, if you're straight, you know, that sort of thing. If you're Christian and American and conservative in your outlook, it's brilliant for getting material. It's not if you don't fit those categories. And it does a very, very good job intentionally or otherwise of hiding material and or putting material where it wouldn't necessarily uh, expect it to be if you fall into one of those other categories and as a result librarians have been trying for a very very long time to sort of figure that out now there's a great deal of thought that maybe the idea of universal knowledge organization systems isn't such a good idea because not everybody thinks that way not everybody thinks about knowledge in that way for example ideas of things like um, indigenous ways of knowing indigenous ways of uh, thinking and uh, their kind of ways of looking at the world are totally different from sort of white ways of looking at the world mm -hmm. as it were and um, it's completely um, impossible to organize those ways of uh, knowing those ways of looking at the world using these knowledge organization systems they're not built for it and as a result they they don't work uh, so saying okay all knowledge is great this is a universal knowledge organization system you can apply it to everything it just doesn't work now but now these things are embedded in libraries they've been embedded for such a long time that most people walking into a library don't even realize that there's any kind of bias put into the way information is organized they just think oh this goes with that this goes with that this is uh, this material goes next to this material of course that's just how it's done so the biggest kind of obstacle is that these systems are kind of invisible if you walked into the library now you wouldn't even think about it or well, say you most people don't even think about it mm -hmm. they just see it as the way things are done and because these things are so old so kind of set there are some really weird uh, kind of connections made between knowledge that nowadays people think well, that just doesn't make sense at all like for example like even if you went w walked into Weldon Library now uh, Weldon Library which uses the Library of Congress classification system has the knowledge organized in their shelves the things organized on their shelves it puts uh, childcare next to eugenics oh because the Library of Congress classification system puts those things together. Makes sense. Makes, <laughs> makes for some very weird ju uh, juxtapositions. Yeah. Um, that one's a bit weird. Mm -hmm. It also puts um, information, what was it, um, women's studies next to thanatology, which is the study of death. Hmm. Because Library of Congress sees the, the connection between those two. But it also makes uh, darker connections and ones which can cause problems because uh, that can cause more serious problems such as it puts information on uh, what it calls um, parasex uh, like paraphilias which is mm -hmm. what would be like odd forms of sexuality next to um, homosexuality mm -hmm. L LGBTQ things which means material about things like paedophilia are just put straight next to what would be any books about the LGBTQ community, mm -hmm. which means somebody who doesn't know that this is a deliberate choice would walk into the library and think these things are just meant to be put together, mm -hmm. as in there's a natural connection between the two. And that can be very damaging. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that can lead to, again, people making connections mm -hmm. that aren't necessarily there. 
And this is why you have the sort of critical cataloging movements, the, the idea of people trying to change this. And they form sort of two main schools. One of them is uh, one read by people like Sanford Berman and people like that who think the system can be changed, we just need to quirk it. We go in one by one and take the connections and change them. We change the subject headings, we change the connections, we go and go, okay, this one's wrong, we've identified it, it's bad. Uh, we can take that one away and slowly the system will eventually get better. It'll eventually fix itself. That's the minority uh, view within libraries. The majority, or well, I would believe it's the minority, the majority view is the one, at least nowadays, is saying these systems are just inherently broken because no matter what you uh, change within it, you're kind of treating the symptom rather than the disease mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, it's still a system that's a hundred years old built from kind of views that are never ever going to be correct or correct is the wrong word sorry never ever going to be workable for every situation so you can't fix something that's always going to be broken you're mm -hmm. just kind of taping it up taping it up taping it up it's it's never ever going to work so we're never ever quite going to get rid of this because at the end of the day you need a workable solution mm -hmm. that works in libraries but something has to be done because you can't go on like this sorry that turned into a bit of a rant <laughs> no you're passionate i love that yeah. <laughs> i it, it's something that i think i loved li uh, using libraries as a, as a library patron just as a library user from the time when i was a very very small child but again i didn't know that there was anything that could possibly be wrong with it. Like the idea that, again, I, I would walk in, the, the information is there, it's there for me to see, it's there for me to use. What a wonderful idea. And then when I was sort of introduced to this idea that, no, no, this stuff has been organized by somebody and somebody made a conscious decision that this goes with this, this goes with that, and that their intentions were not necessarily benign. It came as such a shock uh, that I, it really blew me away. And then when I also discovered that there were people who were trying to change that and that it was something that it, it seemed like such a, a wonderful thing to be involved with. Uh, again, like, again, Melissa Adler, who is now, uh, who is a professor at FIMS, who is my PhD supervisor, was very, very, uh, I think, good for me in that she introduced me to the work of, again, Sanford Berman, who's the guy who I mentioned before, who was a huge pioneer in this field. Uh, in 1971, he wrote a very groundbreaking book called uh, Prejudices and Antipathies, which was just a study on um, subject headings within the uh, Library of Congress classification system, where he pointed out hundreds of them and just said, these are wrong, these are like bad ones that you could uh, potentially change, that pointed out what was terribly bad within the system. And it just blew me away that it's like somebody just sat down and did this <laughs> like where the library of congress is essentially the most powerful library in the world and that somebody just off the top of their head just sat down and went okay i'm going to challenge it and it, it became such a massive catalyst he wasn't the first to do it and he's certainly not been the last um but it, it just had such a huge effect on me to see that this was something you could do uh, and Melissa was very kind and said, oh, you know, he's still alive. You could just write to him. Um, <laughs> so I did. Uh, and he wrote back. And we've wow. been in touch for the last uh, five years. Nice. Uh, yeah. Fantastic man. Uh, incredibly, uh, 
incredibly supportive of uh, people who are still trying to do that sort of work. Uh, when I first published uh, Amir, I co-wrote an article, um, sent it to him, and he, he wrote a review of it, which is very, very positive. <laughs> so it's nice to, sometimes it is nice to meet your heroes. Yeah, for um, sure. So again, I'm ranting, I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that must be so validating. You get positive feedback from someone who's basically like a like a pioneer and idol in this. Yeah, place. yeah. Like it, it, it really was. It really was. Like just just to essentially get somebody to say, oh yeah, like keep up the good work. You know, that sort <laughs> of thing. Like, like uh, yeah, thank you, thank you for your thing. I'm sharing it with my friends. Oh my god. And then, <laughs> then the next thing, it was like publishing a review of it. It was a big deal to me. Yeah. Sorry <laughs> again. I'm just kind of ranting. I no, that's fun. awesome. Um, so you kind of mentioned that you really liked going to the library when you were small. Like, is that what kind of got you into this field or what What made you choose to pursue this, this sort degree? Of, sort of. Um, a lot of people, I, originally I studied ancient history um, just because I was kind of into the stories and things like that. Mm -hmm. I never expected to go to university. Um, and then lots of people said, uh, you know, you should really study library science. It's something that, that would be really good for you. And I, I resisted it for a long time. And then I realized that ancient history left you really, really, um, w when I did it, which was quite a while ago, uh, it really wasn't very technically advanced kind of discipline. And I was falling really behind on how good I was with technology. <laughs> and I realized this was a really good way to sort of boost up my um, sort of technical proficiency because the MLIS program forced you to sort of update your technology <laughs> skills and that was really how i got into it and then uh that was really my motivation for doing it but then again i took this one class with melissa and she introduced me to sort of this work and i was like this i want to do this i want to be involved in this and it kind of flipped the switch and uh, i never looked back nice. and yeah that was to, uh, 2018 and now i'm in the <laughs> phd program so that's honest it's such a heartwarming story oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> earlier you mentioned that the way things are cataloged sometimes like it makes some things that you want to find kind of difficult to find are there any examples you can think of of that um i can't think of anything specific in terms of like one specific thing i can think in terms of um cataloging systems but specific ones like again most of my knowledge comes from studying library of congress classification because uh, I work in an academic library, but <laughs> it's all um, related to subject headings. But the subject headings are not written by groups themselves. They're written by the Library of Congress. So they don't use um, internal language, like language that's um, natural to the group. So when people are trying to um, search for things, they would use the language that they use to describe themselves. But it's not written by that. It's written by the group. Uh, it's written by the by the organization and it's not regularly updated. So you find that you'll have terminology that's massively out of date and it's also, it's archaic and it's potentially offensive. So you'll find that people in like the LGBTQ community or people who are sort of in from uh, marginalized communities, racialized communities, can't search for things using what would be the natural search terms that come to their head. They're, because they're not there, they're not in the system. And so you find that they they can't find what would be the relevant material for their for, for their searches because it's just not it's it's there, but the logical um, terms that you'd use to find it aren't the ones that the system holds. 
I'm trying to think of specific examples <laughs> off the top of my head because I know they exist, but I can't, I'm afraid. Um, because the system's not, it's not updating itself and it's not reaching out going, okay, what's the, um, what are people using? Um, it's something that, uh, like, what are people using to actually search? What would be, in, in the same way that you would say on the internet, saying, okay, what's a kind of search term? And using that as the actual subject heading or using that as a kind of go-to that you can attach to the subject heading. So if somebody puts that in, it's attached to it, making it something that you could kind of type into the thing and find the books and find them. Because it means that as time goes on, because these things are not being updated, it becomes increasingly archaic and the stuff kind of slides off naturally. You can't find it. You can't find it. It's becoming increasingly old. It's becoming increasingly marginalized. And that's happening to more marginalized groups than anyone uh, than say other other groups just by itself because they're not providing the support that you'd expect or the, the support that they should get and that becomes more and more of a problem because that essentially by doing that it becomes invisible within the system it's got to be like an immense challenge to try and keep this sort of thing like very structured and very systematic but also living and breathing with the times exactly yeah exactly and again, that comes down to why um, a large universal system isn't necessarily such a good idea, <laughs> like because it's it's not working for everyone, uh, and it's not it's not designed to. And again, it comes down to the the Library of Congress always, when they're challenged on this, says we write for ourselves. It just so happens that everyone else is using it. Mm. Like <laughs> they say, this is just this is our our um, classification system for us it just so happens the whole world is copying it like, which is a bit of a cop out kind of, kind of <laughs> answer really but and they didn't ask for fame but they should have to deal with it yeah <laughs> that sort of thing you know but. so do you think it would be possible to make a kind of unbiased way of categorizing books or do you think it would be more beneficial to have like each library has a different system kind of based on their I don't know demographic or um I don't know really I I, th I think I think it's entirely it, it's not possible to have an unbiased mm -hmm. um cataloging system because it's it's like everything you put the the biases come in for what are you doing but you're making it for a specific demographic mm -hmm. it'll have the biases of but bias might not necessarily be the right word yeah. in that case but if you're tailoring it to a specific demographic mm -hmm. and not worrying about is it going to work for anyone else? Then you're not. It's not really bias. It's mm -hmm. just like we're building it for these people, mm -hmm. and in fact, so many of the specific ones will say that if it, if it's we're just making it for these people, it's not supposed to work for anyone else. That's not bias. That's just okay. That's fair enough. Mm -hmm. You know, if you like, if you built a prosthetic leg, <laughs> it's not biased to say it's not going to work as an arm. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah. a, but um, the problem there is that there's so many advantages to having a standardizing agent mm -hmm. that's applicable across libraries in terms of it's really really helpful if we have um, a catalog that you can then just use especially for like I work in the interlibrary loan department at Weldon Library mm -hmm. and for interlibrary loan it's great that we can find a book in somebody else's library yes okay and uh, then it comes over or they can find it in ours and so having one cataloging system that it works everywhere where we can kind of cross catalog mm. is really helpful. And it's also the actual act of cataloging 
especially descriptive cataloging and things like that, is really labor intensive. Like it, it's a specialized skill that takes years of training to do properly. And if you can, if everyone's using the same one, you can kill so much of that time by copy cataloging. Yes. <laughs> like, like at the moment, the um, one of the trade-offs that they use in Library and Archives Canada is if you publish a book in Canada or any kind of thing in Canada, you have to give them two copies. But the trade-off is that they will fully catalog it for you and they will make that information available for free to everyone. So your whatever book you've published or whatever you've done that you've released in Canada, every library, everything can have the fully professionally done cataloging information available that then they, they can just copy into their system, which makes whatever you've done really, really easy to find. If we lose the sort of um, universal systems, we lose access to that. We, we, we go back to being not being able to share the information uh, between us very easily. And that's where the kind of problem lies <laughs> in terms of that's why everyone's still using these really ridiculously problematic systems because it's a case of, well, yeah, we know it sucks and it's really problematic and it's deeply racist and kind of misogynistic and really horrible in many, many ways. But at least we can still find stuff and we can share so much information with each other. Like we can go into essentially anywhere in the world and we know we can find a copy of like going back to the other example Jane Eyre instead of just going like well what color is it you know like it's, <laughs> it has to go back like that so that's the trade-off unfortunately mm -hmm. and that's why the sort of the, the idea of the universal system exists oh, this whole chat makes me feel better about the fact that my home library is organized by size <laughs> by size <laughs> by size I want the small stuff at one side the big stuff uh, at the oh, other side library. I thought you meant like your towel like where yeah. you grew up library i'm like what that's the most absurd thing i've ever heard. it was just for me and my cats yes no okay you're, yes Sorry, your own good. personal life that's fair no, so one thing i'm curious about then is what is it what must it be like if you have any insights as like a queer or minoritized person that might be working in this type of system having to organize books in this way that they might not feel great about well this is really um what I want to do with my kind of thesis idea potentially is I want to talk to the people who are actually working as the catalogers and do a kind of study and say, okay, uh, I want to sit down and essentially do a, a couple of small, a series of small interviews asking what it's like to work as a cataloger, knowing that these systems are potentially um, harmful. How do you operate within that knowing this is here you're given a piece of sort of like a book or something you know that the things that you have to attach to it are potentially going to be harmful what do you do how do you operate it and see what they say and i don't know i'm hoping that i'll get a mix of people and potentially somebody from the queer community is going to be one of my participants uh, and i can get that some sort of feedback on that respect that's what i'm hoping i mean at the moment, I don't know. I know that there's a lot of people, like for example, the, the Pride Library at Western, um, originally when it was formed, opted out of um, using, uh, what was it, using the uh, Library of Congress and created their own cataloging system because they didn't like it. Uh, unfortunately, they were forced to use it again because their materials were no longer discoverable within Western libraries.
so they had to go back in again and sadly the cataloging system used by pride library was lost and we don't have a record of it anymore but uh, what i'd like to do is is to sort of talk to people and find out like what, what's it like to actually um to work within the system uh, that's something i'd like to find out to sort of talk to people sit down and go okay what, what's it like to actually um to actually navigate the system from the inside yeah, it must be a real cognitive dissonance, right? You're working in this space. You might not like the way something's sorted, but you kind of have to do it to an extent. That's what I'd like to know. Yeah, like, is it or do they switch off? Do they find workarounds? Like, it's it's something I'd like to know. So how does the cataloging actually work? Is there like based on the Library of Congress, is there key terms that yeah. you have to try to pick and choose between for each book? Yeah, essentially, there's like uh, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. There, there, there are kind of different numbers that are associated with like genres essentially like, um, and each one's um, associated with certain ones and each book is assigned those and then there are subject headings like subject terms which again which narrow they could become narrower and mm -hmm. narrower and narrower and uh, books will be given that and that will essentially see where it goes on the shelf okay. where it'll go next to so what is your day-to-day -day when you're working in the library what does that look like uh, I work in interlibrary loan, so I don't deal with this. I essentially just uh, my my day to day in the library is basically um, sending things between libraries internationally <laughs> within Canada. Um, material arrives essentially if if somebody, especially mainly grad students and faculty, but also a lot of undergrads, um, if they want to order something from a different library, it's a pretty high chance it will go through me. Um, it's free. <laughs> Everyone should use it. It's not as easy to find within the library website than you'd expect, but it is there, and uh, you should make use of it if you can, because if you want anything from any library, they will find it for you. No, you probably you probably held me up when I was doing my master's thesis. <laughs> I sent so many ILL requests. We do our best. So maybe our last question, Where? what do you want to do when you're done? Like, would you like to stay working in the library? Is that the dream? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think I, my, my ideal is, I, I mean, I'd love to be a professor, but mm -hmm. it's 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 pretty uh, narrow <laughs> opportunities there. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, the idea of that would be great. But really, I'd, I'd love to, to sort of work in an academic library as, as I sort of do now, but be slightly higher up the ladder, <laughs> where I'd have the opportunity to sort of uh, carry on with research in some capacity. Because it's so interesting, yeah. like the the ideas of of what you can do, and and you know librarians tend to be quite a, an introspective bunch. They do tend to to sort of take a lot of interest in in their um, their own discipline, and um, so the opportunities are there if you can if you can get in, and and I do love what I do, so if if the opportunity was there, I, I would so take it, <laughs> but uh, there's a long way to go before I'm at that point, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, you're in third near, third year, no? I am, but I move I move slower than most people. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a slow process. Yeah, there's there's too many distractions. Yeah, I mean the, the problem with the PhD, and I said this from the start, is that it, there's so many distractions because nothing at this level is boring. Mm -hmm. Like everyone you meet is so interesting in some way because, uh, like everyone's interested in what they're doing, mm -hmm. and because of that. It doesn't matter what they're telling you about. They're so into it that you get into it. You're like, oh, my God, like, that sounds great. And then they say, oh, come and do this. And so you're so distracted. And then you look around and you go, oh, Christ, a month has gone past and I haven't done anything <laughs> because I've 
been doing this and they go oh come and help with this and suddenly like you're having ideas thrown at you from wherever like nothing is boring in the phd program everyone is interesting everyone's doing interesting things like it's impossible to get bored and it's so easy to get distracted and as a result like time just suddenly flies by and it's oh my god i'm in the third year oh my god <laughs> like, it's, it's terrible i mean that's sorry that's it's not, it's not <laughs> terrible you know it's wonderful but yeah. but it is so easy to sort of um, be distracted by things i think that's a, a great kind of outlook you're so positive about <laughs> your grad school experience <laughs> and clearly so passionate about your work so it's been great great chatting for sure well thank you Hey, so this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Carly Sharon, and my co-host was Anthony Cruz. We've been speaking with Alec Mullinder, and this episode was produced by Susie Lee. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at GradCast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.